Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. I greet you in the name of Jesus Christ today. We are glad that you have chosen to join us for this week's sermon of the Cape Elizabeth Church of the Nazarene. God's Word is full of timeless truths that are relevant to our lives today. Here's this week's message. We're going to spend some time over the next few weeks in Second um, Thessalonians. And uh, this first part, he talks a little bit about the church and what it's done. So we're going to talk a little bit about, um, you know, in today's, and it's fitting for today. We've remembered a little bit of our past. We're going to talk about that. Uh, Later on, chapter 2, he's going to talk about what's going on right now in the life of the church. And we're going to talk about what's going on for us as well and and what God wants to do for our lives right now. And, of course, he's going to talk about the future. And he's going to talk about uh, what to look forward to. So we're going to kind of take... That theme, we look at our past and our present and our future. Um, next week, of course, we're taking a break in that as Kim is going to uh, uh, come and share with us. But today we are in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to tell you today that uh, this, is a, this is a different voice for Paul. He speaks uh, a little bit differently than the way he does in all of his other letters. And so uh, he, seems to be, he seems to have an eye on what's going to happen soon. Or what the end is going to look like. Or, or when Christ returns, what that's going to look like. And so, uh, it's a different letter than most of his other letters. There's a part of me that wonders if there's a guy in his church who was saying, Hey, uh, you want to talk about prophecy? <laughs> and uh, so Paul's like, all right, all right, let me write this second letter to Thessalonians. This a little inside joke with uh, me and Coley there. And so, uh, uh, Paul is, uh, so, so Paul writes this letter. And uh, just a few verses. But let me tell you just a little bit about... Um, who he's writing to, I think it always helps us understand it. Uh, Thessalonians, are uh, these people are located, of course, in the city of Thessalonica. Uh, this is written in, in, uh, right around the 50s, and here's what's happening at that time. The Christian community in that city has kind of been rejected by the Jewish community. Most of Paul's ministry, you'll find in the book of Acts, is going to the synagogues and saying to the people, hey, the Messiah's come. Here he is, this is Jesus, and, and he was rejected, but yet God still offers salvation for his people and for the Gentiles, for everybody. And this is good news, and he, he's going around sharing this, but they've been rejected. And uh, being rejected by the Jewish community in there, they don't really have a synagogue now. They don't have a place to worship. And the Romans, so Thessalonica, just so you know, it's kind of northeast uh, Greece, on the way through a major road towards uh, Turkey, and, uh, but anyway, but the, and all of this is owned by the Romans. And they don't really have space for another group of people who only believe in one God. They don't have space in their communities for another group of people who reject their gods and reject their Caesar as God and, and ultimately don't enjoy the ways of living that they do. To them, the Christians being the newer group, the smaller group, the ones that even the Jews aren't going to let come in their, uh, uh, in their synagogues, they're, they're just seen as a sect. as just this, this tiny group of people who do life in weird ways, and they don't like them. They're, they're rejecting their gods. They're rejecting their faith. And when they reject their gods, they're not just saying, oh, well, they believe differently. They're rejecting an entire way in which their society operates and how they interact with each other. Imagine if, in our country, for every national holiday every unique occurrence was more than just a social gathering. Imagine for a moment each one was also a religious gathering. That's right. Every national holiday is more than just a a remembrance or memorial of of our celebration of something that happened in the past. It's always a religious festival as well. Uh, That's how it was for them. 
everything that they did, every unique remembrance was tied in some way to their pantheon of gods or tied in some way to uh, their uh, elevation of their emperor, their Caesar as a god. And so if someone converted to Christianity, well, it means they're not being involved in the things going on in their society. There are no more parades, no more grilling out, no more gift giving, no more sending cards, no more feasts. They're not doing that with everybody else. None of that is possible for early Christians when every single one of those events was tied to one of their gods or involved worshiping one of their gods because they said that's a false god and we're not going to do it. And so the society was like, we don't, we don't like these Christians. We don't like them. They just disrupt everything. And if, and if my family member or, or my neighbor converts to that, all of a sudden I don't get to see them at these events. This isn't good. And if my spouse does, ugh, like now, now they're not even doing all the things we used to do. It just, and, and so Christians were uh, starting to receive a little bit of persecution and being kicked out of the city. It'll lead to the expulsion of many Christians and the rejection of permission to worship. It's in that context that second, this second letter of Paul is written to them. So let me share it with you. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We must always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith during all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. Well, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God and is intended to make you worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. For it is indeed just of God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, to give relief to the afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at on that day among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, asking that our God will make you worthy of his call and will fulfill by his power every good resolve and work of faith, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This letter begins with him saying, hey, can I just say thank you? Just thank you for what you've done and your faithfulness and who you are. He says, I can't help but boast and talk about you and what you're doing. I, I hope as a pastor, a lot of times I like to give illustrations from my past, different churches I've served in and whatnot. I hope that as you remember any of those stories that you find that those stories are usually good ones. I don't think I complain too much. <laughs> uh, but part, part of the reason isn't not because there weren't difficulties sometimes, but part of it is as I look back, a lot of times what I find is a lot of the events and things that happen are because the people at church are passionate about the church that they were a part of, and they were passionate about the gospel. And even if there's a disagreement, there's at least a, a dedication. Hey, we, we are hoping to be faithful to God here. And that's what I find myself 
kind of holding on to the most as I look back, and I hope those are the stories I share the most with. I give thanks for the ways in which people have been faithful. I just went, um, just had pastors and spouse retreat uh, before Sunday through Tuesday this week. And, um, and when pastors get together, and when anytime, you know, colleagues and people who are, are right with you get together, you know, one of two things can happen. People can say, oh, let me tell you how hard things are and how difficult things are and how much I, I don't like how things are going. Or people can say, let me tell you the good things that are going on, what people in my church are doing. I'll tell you what, this, Sunday, uh, this, this last week was full of that. Full of us saying, hey, this is what our churches are doing. This is what we're excited about. This, this is the faithfulness that we are seeing in our churches. At one point in time, I, I saw Tim's parents there. Uh, his dad is, is an ordained minister. And yeah, we even found good things to say about Tim. And so, you know, it was, it, it was a good time. It was a good time. So, yeah, you can't do your rim shot now. <laughs> and so, so like, we, we found ourselves as we were getting together saying, oh, hey, you know, we, we love to talk about the good things that God is doing in the church, good things God is doing in people's lives, and the ways in which you guys faithfully step up again and again. And uh, whether you are sharing your faith with, with those whom you know, the way in which you are serving the church, the way in which uh, you are engaged and saying, I just want to see what God is going to do and see lives change here in Cape Elizabeth and around us. We are, so we celebrate this. We celebrated that work and we continue to. This is what Paul is doing at the beginning of Thessalonians. He's saying, I can't help when I go to the other churches that I've planted and I'm talking with the other apostles, I can't help but brag about what God is doing. And I know the church in Thessalonians, uh, Thessalonica is going, Man, I don't, I, things look rough. We can't hardly get together to worship. Uh, church is not going well. Uh, no, one wants, no one wants to join. And even those who do, are under, now, now they're under threat. It's one of those instances where I suspect the church is going, how are we going to grow? How are we going to become the church that we could be? How are we going to go on about mission when, when no one cares and no one likes us? Like, I, I think the church sometimes recognizes that sometimes that feels like our statement as well. Man, are, are, are we doing everything we should be? Are we growing as fast as we could be? Are we, are, are we reaching out to the people that we should be? And uh, Paul says to this church, in this midst of hardship, he says, I'm thankful for your faithfulness. I'm thankful for what God is doing, even when it seems like everything around you isn't quite going the way you wish it was. And so uh, here, here he is uh, celebrating them and being uh, optimistic about what God is still going to do in their lives. Sometimes, indeed, there are hardships in the church, things that make it a little bit more difficult. And that's no different for this church here. Their hardships are coming from the outside, persecuting them. But they are still being steadfast and faithful, Paul says, despite these persecutions. And there are persecutions. Remember this when we go to the rest of the chapter. It'll change the entire feel and sound of how we read this chapter. And I think the rest of the chapter can be read, indeed has been read, in dangerous ways when divorced from that kind of context of of a church that is struggling and being afflicted with persecution. And so he thanks them for their faithfulness. He thanks them for who they are and what they've been through because it makes a difference. And so he says then in verse 5, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. And I want to suggest today, and I've read a handful of commentaries who agree with this, that when he says this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, when he says this is evidence, 
What he's pointing to when he says this is the evidence is their faithfulness and steadfastness in the midst of their afflictions, in the midst of the persecution. He's not pointing to the persecution itself. Why does that matter? Well, if he was talking to the persecution itself, then it's a way of saying, well, these things, bad things are happening because that's part of God's righteous judgment. For whatever reason, he's decided that should happen to you. But I don't think that's what Paul's saying at all. He's just spent the last two verses thanking them. You, you've been faithful. You've been good despite what's happened. And this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God because it is making you worthy of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, what he's saying is not that the suffering's making you worthy of the kingdom of heaven. Your faithfulness, despite what is happening, makes you worthy of the kingdom of heaven. I could sh- I'll just give a brief overview of some examples. I know I've made sermon illustrations in the past. Uh, a lady in my church who, who, who I once went to her and I said, hey, you've been so involved and, and I know right now you're incredibly sick and you're incredibly ill and this is not looking good. Why don't you step back? And she looks at me and says, Pastor, I don't know what else to do but to serve God in this way. Talked with another lady. She had fallen. She had uh, broken her hip. She's in the hospital. She's been there for a month or two, and I'm visiting her, and she says, Pastor, don't you dare pray for me to get better. And I was like, wait, what? She's like, I got nurses I get to minister to every single day. <laughs> and I was like, all right, all right. Another guy in my church who um, just uh, uh, again and again, uh, uh, he had different issues that he was dealing with. But whenever I was talking with him, every conversation I had always ended with two words, uh, often punctuated throughout our conversation with these two words, words praise God. It was just always on his lips. A guy by, it was a guy by the name of Clarence, a guy who, was, who had been a minister and a guy who had lived a good deal of his adulthood trying to make the most out of his life in the 60s. As a black man, had a hard time, had a hard time. But as we talked, and we talked about whether it was his past or we talked about where he was right now and what he was going through right now and uh, whatever, always punctuated with the words, praise God. He found, and I look at these kinds of stories, and I'm like, okay, Paul, I know what you're saying. No, those didn't happen because you wanted them to happen, but yet somehow, despite all of that happening, wow, they're ready for the kingdom of heaven. And it was obvious, and it was evident that God had so worked in them, despite what had happened, that they indeed were made worthy of the kingdom of heaven. This is what Paul is saying to the church in Thessalonica. Despite all this, you have been faithful and you're ready for the kingdom of heaven. And so he goes on, he says, uh, and he says in, uh, in verse 6, he says, this, this is when this, this chapter starts to get, takes a turn for the worse. It starts, starts to get a little bit scary. He says, uh, this, this God who uh, uh, will uh, indeed uh, make a righteous judgment from verse 5, he says, and it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And so there's this idea that, okay, but there is... A dark side, right? Or there's a, uh, uh, there, there's, there's a different side to judgment as well. And he says, he's going to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And I want you to know today that this is, this is a sense of seeking justice for those who have been wronged. This isn't like petty revenge. This isn't God being petty. Oh, I don't like you. You're not on the right side. I got issues for you, and I got, a, got an eternity of hell for you. This isn't a pettiness. Pettiness is like, you know, when you're driving on the road, and uh, you see that uh, car coming around the bend, and you know the car's coming around the bend because uh, it's nighttime. You don't see the car yet, but you see the brights, right? You see the brights, and, and you know, I don't know about you guys, but like 20, 30 years ago, 
It seemed like you always saw the headlights when you were going around a bend. You always knew if a car was around the bend. If you had your brights on, you could see it by the lights reflecting off the trees. So you dim your lights, right? I have found lately that people don't dim their lights anymore until they're at least facing you. And sometimes not until they're like close. (laughs) Oh yeah, I I should do that. But it feels like to me, uh, I don't know, maybe this is just me. I don't know, complaining. But uh, it, it seems to me like people used to turn them off a lot earlier. And I had a conversation one time. Man, I'm trying to remember if it was someone from a church or someone from a family reunion. Uh, I got a weird family. We'll just say it was an uncle. So uh, uh, an uncle was telling me that uh, he said, you know, I got tired of uh, people not turning off their brights. And he had this car that he had on the uh, left mirror. He had one of those uh, Lamps that like a police cruiser has. And he said, I was on the, and he lives, yeah, it probably was family, because he was in Flatland. And uh, so, so now I'm getting an idea of the concept. And, uh, and he saw this car coming uh, from miles away. He saw this car coming. He had, it had the brights on. And he's like, oh no, this guy's got his brights on. Well, I'm not going to do this drive towards each other this whole time being blinded. And, you know, I don't want to just stare at the white line off to the side this whole drive. And so uh, he says, uh, so, so he, he, he flashes his brights. All right, all right, come on, you got your brights on, let's turn those off. And he does it. And so he comes up and he says, okay. So as they get closer and closer and closer, just as he gets close, he turns on that headlamp. Boom, blasts him just as he drives. Now that's petty revenge. <laughs> that is, okay, okay, the person was a jerk, or okay, that person wronged you in some way, but that was just petty. And I think sometimes... When we think about what eternity looks like and what God might do, it comes off as petty. Oh, God likes certain people or not certain people based on whether or not they met his criteria. And so now there is an eternity one place or another. But when he talks in 1 Thessalonians verse 6, when he says, I'll repay affliction to those who afflict you, this is part of the justice of those who have wronged people. This isn't petty revenge. This is... If you've been crying out to God, does anyone see what they're doing? Does anyone see what's happening to me? God does. And says, this doesn't go unanswered. Uh, I'm going to make sure I take care of this and make sure that you are justified. And that, that, that what has happened to you doesn't become the lasting word. And so, I mean, this, the, the affliction they're, they're dealing with is loss of property, loss of life, the, the very means of taking care of their family, all because... They're Christians. And so this is what God has talked to you when he says, hey, I will afflict those who afflict you. Even the next verse, I will give relief to the afflicted. I mean, it's all tied in. And then verse 8 has this this saying that I think if you divorce it from everything else is, is really kind of scary. He says, he talks about flaming fire and inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I, and I know we can look at that and go, oh no, what is this? Is this that pettiness we were talking about? What is this? You just, I will inflict vengeance on anyone who doesn't know. Anyone who doesn't obey the laws. And the more I look at this, the more I remember this context for Thess- Thessalonians. The more I think that this is a, a descriptor of those who are doing the afflictions. When I find myself saying, okay, who are those who don't know the Lord? I find myself saying, okay, it's, it's those who aren't doing the afflictions. This is, this is not a new descriptor. This is not a blanket statement against those who don't believe. 
It's a descriptor of those doing the affliction. And you might say, well, well, pastor, how can you come up with that? Well, if we want to emphasize something in the way that we're talking and speaking, a lot of times we'll do it with cadence. How we emphasize our various words or perhaps adding a rhyme to it. I can't think of the rhyme. Can't adding, add, adding something that makes it go, okay, I'm following that. It's, it's why like slam poetry is like blown up in popularity over the last decade or two. It's why uh, like, like this idea of like, hey, we can, we can emphasize and we can read something and we can speak something. And, it, and if you're following the way that my words are moving, like, okay, I get this. We gather around it, we understand. The, 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 Hebrew rhetoric, the Hebrew way of, of exercising their plays with words was not through the cadence or the rhyme or the rhythm. It was through the reflection of ideas. And so you find that in the Psalms. And so you find that they'll say something and then they'll say it again with different words. And maybe that saying again different words is narrowing the idea or emphasizing the idea or saying it again with new words or saying the polar opposite but just reflecting the same idea. And so I can't help that the rhetoric that Paul uses in Thessalonians when he says, those who don't know God will indeed suffer a vengeance, that he, this is him using that Hebrew rhetoric, and that when the people of Thessalonians read this, they're like, we know who doesn't know God. They're not worried about that family member who left the church. They're not worried about that neighbor they haven't told about Jesus yet. They're worried about the people in the church or, or the people in the community who are persecuting them and afflicting them and trying to take uh, everything that they've worked hard for away from them just because they're Christians. They know exactly who Paul is talking about when he says whoever doesn't know the Lord is going to have vengeance inflicted upon them. And so, so the next thing then they ask is, well, what does he mean by who doesn't obey the Lord? Whoever doesn't obey the Lord is going to suffer this vengeance. And I think it's some of the same ways because we could find ourselves, well, which law is he talking about? Which obedience do we have to have? Is it just the basic commandment of love that's being denied definitely by those persecuting the church? Is it something else? If we want to be consistent with Paul's theology, in the book of Romans, he writes... Well, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Which means all of us have failed at obeying. And, then, and, if, and if, that's, if that's the case, well, this word is for each and every one of us. But in Romans, he also writes that by the grace of Jesus Christ, all of creation is promised redemption. All of creation uh, is, is finding hope in the Christ who is crucified for us. In other words... We don't get to read verse 8 and assume that just because someone doesn't have the relationship with God that we think they ought to have, that they're automatically excluded. To that, I just say, well, let's just trust God and see. Let's see what the grace of God is willing to do. I think this passage is focusing on those who are so adverse to who God is that they're hurting God's people they're people who are absolutely rejecting the grace of God to the point of hurting others in the church. I've thought about this a lot because I find myself wondering about uh, friends, family, people I know and love, who I know don't know God and not necessarily obeying, and I find myself wondering if this verse were just to be taken out of its context and just be flat how it is, as a lot of old, very familiar evangelism models have done, it become, it's, becomes pretty scary. And I find myself thinking that um, I know that there are people, people here 
that I love very much, that I die for. People I would suffer for. People I would do anything for. People whom without a doubt I would vouch for and say, man, this is a good person. People I would do anything for. But uh, people who I know aren't in a right relationship with God. Some of those people I can't imagine life without. And frankly, I don't want to imagine life or eternity without them. I'm sure you might know some people like that as well. And I've often found myself wondering, are there people whom I love, love enough so deeply that I say, man, I would do absolutely anything for you, and all I want is for you to go to heaven. All I want is for you to have eternity with me. And so like, I'll share with them the gospel, I'll share with them the hope, I'll share with them the promise. And it's still not received. I said, man, I would do anything. And I know I can't force you because <laughs> uh, I don't want to drive you away, but man, I would do just about anything. Sometimes I found myself saying, man, when Jesus comes back, would I, would I say, let him take my place or let her take my place? Have you ever wondered that before? And I found myself one time in a, in a time of prayer saying, man, wait, hold on a minute though. Didn't Jesus do that? In the same kind of classic articulation of atonement that seems to say that God uh, punishes or rewards people based on what they did or what they believe. You better obey or else. You better know God or else. And that same articulation of the atonement is, is the story that Jesus said, well, I will take your place. I'll die in your place. And according to Paul, guy who wrote Second Thessalonians in the book of Ephesians says, he descended to the depths. That's why we end up saying in the Apostles' Creed, he descended to hell. And you know what? That gives me hope. It makes me all the more thankful that God's the judge. Because it means we find in Jesus someone who is eager to say, I, I want to spend eternity with you. I want to share this gift of life with you. But someone who is willing to die indeed to go to hell for us. And it gives me hope that maybe heaven's gates are a little wider than some very narrow evangelism strategies have led me to believe. And if we take seriously that verse 8 is about uh, talk about those who don't know God and those who don't obey God is an insulting descriptor for those who are afflicting the church and those who are persecuting the church then it means this story of punishment, that means a story of eternal destruction, is not the mark of a cold and callous God who just likes to take sides. Yeah, you're good enough. You don't, no, you're not. It's the story of a God who says, evil might get away with things on earth, but they don't get away with it in heaven. And so now it becomes good news for the church who's just crying out, where's justice? Where's hope? Where is indeed a, a sense in which God would say, this suffering isn't for naught? People who seem to get away with too much are being watched by God. Indeed, our suffering is not for nothing. God will hold the persecutors accountable and we will be redeemed. That's the hope in, first, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And so now we get a picture. If we kind of go back to what today is, now we see why the church has celebrated All Saints Day. It's the day in which we remember those who have gone before us and gone far too early, often because of things that have happened to them. In the history of the church, it was often because of injustice done to them at the hands of those who were in power. 
And to this God says in verse 11, He has made them worthy of the call and will fulfill every good resolve and work of faith. And so we as God's people are called to be vessels of God's grace that will share the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that He would be glorified in us and that we would be glorified in Him according to His grace. This is what Paul is offering. We have opportunities to do that. Some of us will have it when we share a memorial with someone who's a family member who maybe used to come here and hasn't for a while. We'll say, hey, God's grace hasn't left you. He loves you and we want to let you know we have remembered the faithfulness of your loved one. We're going to have other, we have other opportunities too, whether it's later in this next month, helping someone in need, saying God loves you and cares for you exactly for where you are or the others in our family, or co-workers, or friends, when we share with them who God is and what He's done in our life and say, God wants to do the same for you. The good news we share is hope and resurrection and a future with God. This is the catalyst for our evangelism. This is the catalyst for our message. We want to share this good news with a world for whom Jesus Christ has died and said, I will do anything for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. And I thank you, Heavenly Father, for the faithfulness of your Son, Jesus Christ, the one who went to the cross and went to the depths for us and for our salvation. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that your salvation reached out to the ones who have been so impactful in our lives and I thank you that we are able to remember them and remember that you too are working in us in ways we don't even understand the full impact of yet and I pray and I hope that you will help us to be faithful to your son Jesus Christ to be faithful to the message entrusted to us by your followers who have gone before us and Heavenly Father We trust that you are with us. You see us where we are, and your love goes before us. Thank you again for your grace and your place in our life. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. We hope that the message has inspired you to draw closer to God each day. More sermons are available online at our website, capenazarene.org. May God bless you abundantly as you serve Him today.